Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. Welcome, Ben, to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Well, thank you, Ryan. Very happy to be here. Uh, always good talking with uh, two of my favorite IT people. <laughs> Thanks for, for for coming on board. Um, you guys had your uh, IGEL, was it, was it a, a partner event or did you sponsor? I wasn't really sure last week. Um, do you want to take us through that? Sure. Yeah, so uh, last week we did sponsor IGEL's Disrupt event. I know that's a topic that's near and dear to Heather's heart. Yeah, this was IGEL's first digital version of their Disrupt event. So we'd actually gone to the in-person ones earlier this year, um, but they decided to host a digital one to kind of get the community back together. So, you know, Lakeside decided to sponsor, sponsor the event and just kind of see you know, how it went. I mean, it was our first time in a long time trying um, a virtual event and the platform that was used is sort of meant to simulate an in-person event. So we had like a booth there. Um, We even photoshopped one of our sales reps into the booth um, versus like a stock image just to kind of make it a little bit more personalized. Um, Yeah, and there was like an auditorium you could click into for sessions. So Ben had a session there that we can talk about, you know, they held, held some live keynotes over Zoom. Um, so yeah, it was it was an interesting experience. Um, they also shipped everybody uh, digital disrupt beer glasses. Ben, I don't know if you if you got yours in the mail or not. I did not actually. I didn't get anything. Was I supposed to get something? Um, well, did you register with your work address or your home address? Because <laughs> you might have something waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, I probably do have something waiting for me at the office. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's who knows when we're getting back to that. So, uh, right. Well, at least it can't, you know, it can't decompose. So you're, you're fine. <laughs> true. True. You, you said that a little pointedly. I'm sure that there's going to be like a landfill that's full of idle. <laughs> no, I, I, at some point. <laughs> No, um, I'm just more thinking about any sort of mailer. I'm I'm sure there's you know cookies and stuff still being sent to addresses, but at I any mean, rate, I, at this point, <laughs> I assume that my my office is probably full of junk mail. I mean, I I assume it's going to be like a like a nightmare, like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like I'm going to walk in and pull one loose piece of paper out, and the whole thing is going to collapse. I mean, that's just normal for you, isn't it? It kind of is, yeah. Yeah. Ben, should you maybe give a quick intro to of who you are? I don't know if we, uh, since you're new on this show. Uh, yeah. So my name is Ben Murphy. Uh, right now I am the Senior Director of Product Management at Lakeside Software. So I head up uh, product strategy and uh, continue my work on the front of uh, ISV technical integrations and other things of that sort. Uh, do you want to? Tell everybody what your session was about. <laughs> uh, sure, sure. So uh, my session for Idle Disrupt was oriented around the idea of how you can take this as an opportunity, this in this context being the kind of current world situation, to refactor what counts as kind of normal IT support operations and how to make it possible to support a remote workforce just as well, if not better, than you might be able to do with a kind of more traditional on-premises IT structure. So uh, kind of an exploration of what we consider to be some best practices uh, and then some concrete re- customer results and uh, you know, basically going through a, a very brief overview of, of some of our tool sets on, and how they can help in some scenarios. What's the um, just out of interest? I mean, the, the the when you did your session, was it sort of two way, or were you doing a more sort of webinar? People pumping questions to you on the on a chat. Yeah, so uh, it's it's a good question. It was uh, kind of a pre recorded session with me 
more or less riding shotgun, answering questions as they came in as part of a kind of a Q&A process. This was part of the uh, digital uh, event uh, kind of structure that uh, that Igel had put in place. So it's uh, interesting to work that way. I mean, it, it takes obviously some of the pressure of <laughs> doing the live demo away because there is no live demo anymore. But uh, it, it was good. I think it's about the the best you can do in terms of generating engagement. I mean, I think the mm -hmm. challenge with any of this virtual stuff is because it by its very nature is not as directly engaging. I think you do have to come up with ways to make sure that people are continuing to kind of interact. So making sure that you're free for live questions is mm -hmm. I think a good mechanism for that. Um, I don't know if anyone out there in the world is going to listen to this and come up with a you know, a new platform for these kind of events. But one suggestion I would have is it might be nice to, to have some audience interaction capability at odd points where you can like shoot a poll out real fast or something. Mm. Just as much to see if you've put anybody to sleep as much as it is anything else, because you've got that in a lot of the major, you know, like uh, remote meeting kind of uh, vendors. Although in teams, I don't think I can do that unless I'm an organizer, can I? No. Uh. I don't know. Teams is a bit of a, an enigma. There's there's stuff that that uh, when they're added seems to make things sometimes more complicated or take away something that was useful. Yeah, it's not really quite a webinar platform. I think even the. I feel like I've attended Microsoft ones where it's like yeah. through Teams, but there's an added layer for polling. And what, what were sort of the questions like? Was was there a question that sort of stuck in your mind that you went, "Wow, that's a great question," or? With the uh, common questions, there were some common questions. I think there were some longer questions that were a bit more involved and, and more in the spirit of kind of like overall ITSM strategies. Um, I mean, there were some that I think spoke to the kind of philosophical need to point out the difference between kind of you know good enough and better. Um, which involves looking at uh, some of the ITSM platform collection methods that are in use today. So if you look at like a, let's say ServiceNow, you know, they've got discovery mechanisms that'll go out and populate a change management database. You've got a CMDB app that can use a couple of different integrations or can go out and do some discovery. But there's a big issue with that, which is continuity of data. And it's making sure that you capture devices that are maybe inaccessible at the time or not on the network. And that's really the most key part. If you think about what has happened recently with most people out and doing remote work, the probability that you're going to be able to do meaningful remote discovery drops drastically. I mean, you, there's no guarantee that those users are on a corporate network. There's no guarantee they're going to be connected to a VPN, you know, if they're off network. So, uh, you know, who really knows how you would be able to collect that data? So you really need something that is closer to where the user is actively engaged and interacting to, to be able to get that. So um, at least obviously that's my biased perspective on the subject, but I, I think that um, the dynamics have shifted significantly versus where, you know, you might have been able to get away with doing some flavor of remote discovery or doing some kind of homegrown stuff where maybe you were looking at uh, doing Windows remote management commands or things of that sort to pull back data. Uh, all of that stuff kind of goes out the window if you can't go to the devices anymore. So when you can't get to the device, what would you do then? I mean, are, we, are you talking now running right, sort of some sort of edge? Yeah, well, I'm talking <clears throat> so so narrowly. This is where the edge solution comes in, right? So if I can't yeah. talk to, like, imagine, like, I, I myself right now happen to be connected to a VPN as I'm uh, talking to you guys. But let's say that, um, you know, I were to do most of my business disconnected, which there's really no compelling reason for me to be connected right now. I'm not doing anything that necessitates it. Well, it wouldn't be necessary for me to be connected, but it would be necessary for someone to have that connection present if someone, you know, back home in the quote unquote IT mothership wanted to send me a command. However, mm. I've got a, 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 I mean, you know, we're eating our own dog food, so I have a SysTrack agent on my MacBook uh, and I can send commands to it right over the internet. I have the ability to get data from it right now directly over the internet. So as long as I have internet connectivity, 
I have some way to get real-time data or to get data populated. But even if I weren't, I have the ability on my edge device here to run an action. So I don't have mm. to be connected to anything. I could be purely disconnected, and the, and the intelligence kind of lives on our device itself, which is important when you start thinking about not just populating relatively static entities like, uh, let's say, the name of my desktop or laptop. Probably not going to change that often. It might, but it's probably not going to change very frequently. Um, that's relatively time-invariant data. So for a CMDB, that's pretty well and good if you do a poll and you know you come back with a device and some characteristics about it that don't change very often. Um, you don't have to necessarily worry about keeping that up to date other than knowing that the device still exists. But when you think about the real use here for what we bring to the table, the ITSM processing and incident management, making sure that you've got a really good, compelling way to get to a root cause, you need up-to-date data and you need time-correlated data that's where I think you, you get a very big advantage over kind of the out-of-the-box functions. There you go. It's a nice and long-winded, or, or should I say a nice short explanation of my viewpoint on that. <laughs> and, and how have you found um, sort of with the ecosystem that exists now, where either it's a hybrid cloud model where some of the stuff sitting in the cloud and, and potentially a WVD implementation in in um, Azure uh, versus a store on-premise that's had to pivot to, well, well, I don't know, do business whatever way they can with the people working from home. Yeah, um, so I think we have found that there are a variety of organizations and a variety of states of readiness. So back when things first kicked off, I think you would be hard-pressed to find any organization that was completely ready. I don't think there was really anyone out there that was not caught at least marginally flat-footed by events. Um, but I think if you look at the broader strategy that some organizations had in place versus others, um, you start to get a sense of who did not have the, as much of a scramble as some folks did. So. Mm. You know, I would characterize it as kind of a spectrum. So there are some people in the world who started off very mature in the space of remote work. And, you know, Ryan, I think you're probably familiar with a few organizations that have a very established uh, virtualization practice or virtual general strategy for allowing people to work from home. Um, I don't think that there are a huge number of organizations that were able to pivot without pain to, you know, being able to work from home primarily, but those obviously were in a better position, but even they kind of found themselves caught in the trap of how do I scale appropriately? So, you know, we have one customer as an example, I mean, I'm not going to name names, but um, they're in the, the healthcare business basically. And they uh, were faced with a conundrum, which is basically they needed to almost overnight effectively, almost double the capacity for remote sessions that they were going to mm. use for real business productivity purposes. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question sometimes to know the answer to uh, in terms of what strategy should I take? So, in their case, they really didn't have much of a choice. It, it needed to be an on-premises implementation because of some security policies. And, you know, they, they were not yet far enough down the line in terms of their adoption of cloud resources to consider like a Windows virtual desktop or something like that. But, um, you know, luckily they were able to get some things together and uh, because they, they were an existing customer of ours, did some, you know, basic kind of virtualization planning, resource planning. So that was able to be done without too much difficulty. Uh, but that really is because they had a very kind of concrete understanding of, of how all of their current remote session servicing worked and they had a pretty good practice for it. Now you can contrast that with the other end of the spectrum, which is organizations that were really not as mature in many ways in terms of their remote session planning or uh, virtualization in general. I mm. think 
I, I think it's it's at this point probably I, I wouldn't say literally impossible, but almost impossible to um, find a company that has not tried virtualization in some form or fashion. Uh, I would say that that's pretty much everywhere for everybody. Uh, VDI is, has been trialed probably by every company in existence. But uh, there are some that did not make it very far down that path. I think mm -hmm. this kind of caught them at an inopportune time because I think if you did not necessarily have the expertise in virtualization management and remote session concepts, that no matter what path you chose to take, uh, on-premises or, uh, you know, that's just say uh, any generic kind of desktop as a service offering, you're not probably familiar enough with the subject to know how to plan effectively, what to deliver. Uh, and it it's, would be very challenging to make sure that your users are getting what they need out of the experience. And I feel like um, we've seen some examples of that where people have tried to pivot to that, say, like a pure Windows virtual desktop play, but don't really have a very solid vision for what they want out of it. So, you know, they know, hey, I've got to be able to remote, uh, I've got to be able to support remote users. They have to be able to connect to these resources uh, with perhaps their own device or, or whatever. Um, but over and beyond that, there wasn't necessarily a huge amount of thought put into the kind of real productivity apps that they would have to have and, you know, what, appro what appropriate sizing would be like and, uh, you know, geographically where they want to put resources and things. So um, I feel like, uh, you know, across the board, if I were to just summarize, because I know I, I'm, I keep getting long-winded here. Um, the uh, the idea is that people who who had more, I would say, robust IT experience with remote sessions to start with, usually found themselves in a better position for that pivot than folks that were less experienced with that. Mm -hmm. I think, it's, I mean, because you know, it's it's kind of drug on long enough. A lot of those people who did not initially have that experience have have already gone through the path of trying some flavor of virtualization, potentially failing a little bit, and then starting again. Um, and and that's actually what we've seen a couple of kind of newer customers do. Uh, you know, take an initial misstep with like Windows Virtual Desktop, have a not great experience, but mostly because it's really still in the planning phases. They're kind of just, you know, dipping their toe in the water, so to speak. Uh, but when they revisit it with a more concrete plan, with some actual data, you get much better results. Yeah, there were a couple of things you said that, that I still wanted to go back through. So, I, I mean, I've sat in a few forums where um, some of these companies, I mean, as you mentioned, you'd, you'd expect everyone's tried VDI of some sort. Um, some of these guys, as, as organizations, they had not tried it. Um, and they were caught in a situation where they still had desktops, physical desktops, um, and were needing to buy laptops to provide to their staff. Um, those that that were working from home and, and didn't have, you know, their own their, their BYOD device, their you know, their personal device to use, um, to just even use, not even not even connect into a, their, their desktop in the office. Um, for something like email or, or accessing some of their web applications uh, to some situations where um, they had these environments up and running, but they hadn't ever stress tested them or put them through sort of business continuity and they were falling over um, and not even the full demand, but sort of, you know, 25% increase or, or even a 50% increase in, in traffic. So it, it, I think I think there were a lot of companies caught um you know, by their own probably cost-cutting measures over years to not do these things because they weren't priorities. Because you know, when we're going to have a disaster, or we never have one, to having this this pandemic, which has caused that disaster recovery plan to come into play, and not being ready for it. Um, so it's, yeah. it's yeah, it's interesting what what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's something I've seen here. Um, the other thing that you mentioned around um, sort of a, a maturity curve. For some, you know, those that have been through some pain before, and I'm thinking of like Hurricane Sandy in the States a couple of years ago, or even 9/11. Um, people that have been through those sort of scenarios tend to think about those things first because they've experienced them. 
which means everyone's experiences now. So it means everyone will think about this now for at least the next couple of years when they're planning. Because it's more yeah. Real. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point too, because I, I feel like this is kind of a, a an interesting point of inflection in terms of adoption for cloud resources. I think this. <laughs> As an unfortunate thing, because I actually think you know adopting cloud resources is a positive thing. This kind of puts it in a sour context, but you know, hopefully, you know what I mean. This is kind of a forcing function for a lot of organizations mm. to realize that if they really want to scale in the way that they want to, it really is time to get out of managing your own infrastructure. It's time to kind of abandon a lot of what the kind of traditional thought process was around. Uh, you know, on-premises data management and, and kind of like those big legacy workflows. Mm. I, I say that, you know, in, in kind of the same context there, you know, as people start to adopt new technologies and, and move stuff around, um, that is kind of one of, I think, the biggest opportunities that most organizations have. But it also, op it, it represents a very large risk. Um, I will say that the, the the largest scale failure for desktop as a service uh, implementation that I have ever seen, uh, it was with an organization that I will not give any details about, and I won't talk about the provider either, because really it's not either of their you know, like faults or anything. It's just this project didn't work the way that it probably should have. Um, involved that kind of lack of insight and lack of planning um, so I mentioned earlier that a lot of people kind of get into the idea that this looks like a good idea, I should do it, but then once you get into a pilot phase, you don't really have a solid plan for, you know, okay, well, what next? Like, what's mm -hmm. the practice case that you actually want to solve with this technology? Because there's a lot of technology out there, and, uh, you know, it might sound optimistic, but I would say that, I, you know, for pretty much any given software product, you can probably find some use for it in pretty much any organization. That's not to say it's going to be, you know, quote unquote, the best solution. Um, but, you know, what is best, who knows? Uh, the, the problem there, though, is you could spend every day of the rest of your life evaluating, you know, every bit piece of software that's in existence. But usually what should come before that is a question of what am, what problem am I solving? What, what am I actually mm. getting out of so um, in their case, they had a, uh, an internal struggle between a security organization and, and basically the desktop engineering group. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because we, we spoke with an ex-colleague of mine and he was, it was exactly this discussion, security versus desktop engineering. Yeah, well, I mean, I, and, and Ryan, you probably know who lost. Um, and it's not security. So... Um, these, uh, these, these, these people ended up deploying to this uh, desktop as a service platform, and um, they carried over the same security suite that they had for their physical desktops. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think, Ryan, you know exactly where I'm going with that. Uh, that came with, I think, seven security agents. Um, yeah, their baseline CPU usage you know what? I'll ask you a question. This is this is only system account CPU usage. They did a single user uh, VDI assignment, uh, so you know everyone's getting a persistent desktop. Yeah. Um, guess what their background CPU usage was just for security agents? Uh, like probably fifty percent or something. Sixty percent. Sixty percent. So you can imagine what happens. Uh, and they turned on, and you know the exact number eludes me, but it's on the order of thousands of these. And you know they're shocked. But hey, we're not getting great performance. Well, I'm I'm not going to go through the whole drama, but you can imagine that, uh, you know the the platform provider wasn't happy because they're like, mm. and we we you know we were kind of involved in this throughout, uh, because can you blame the platform for for your image? Not not really, right? It's not their fault what you chose to do with the VM. Mm. Um, and really, it's not the desktop engineering either. I mean, they didn't necessarily have any choice on what to include in the image. And, you know, in a certain regard, it's not really security's fault either because it's not like they're virtualization experts or know what mm. the impact of that stuff that's not designed for virtualization in a virtual environment would be. 
it, the whole thing is just a failure of, of planning across the board. And, you know, that, that I think is something that, uh, you know, in their case that happened a little while ago. So this is before all of this kind of uh, really critical remote work stuff kicked off. So they had a little bit of time, obviously it's, they lost a lot of money. I mean, that's, you know, a fair thing to say, but it, it did not involve kind of business continuity problems. Um, you know, if you make a mistake like that now, unfortunately, I think that you don't have that luxury. Hmm. Just out, of, just out of interest, I mean, did they have any performance testing done on the image before they rolled out a thousand, or how many instances, or did they just sort of roll it out and then just hope for the best? Well, uh, it's funny you should ask because they just kind of rolled it out and hoped for the best. Um, I'm not again. I, I I'm not here to 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 as they say. That Monday night football, Tuesday night football. I don't watch football. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, at any rate, the, uh, the 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 point of the matter is that there's a very very clear underlying root cause for their problem, which is lack of planning and lack of validation to an extent too. So that project, as you might have imagined, kind of crashed and burned. So that's mm. you know probably not a, not a grand example. But I will say that because they went through that pain later, and this is something that we're, I mean, they're still a customer of ours, um, they, they, they were able to, to execute a remote planning exercise much better. So they kind of mm. got the concept, and, and now they're able to, to do that remote work support. Um, so, you know, failure is the best teacher, I think, in a lot of cases. Well, well I was going to say, yeah, we don't need to criticize anybody, but I think it's it's about sharing experience and learning. So things like uh, you should really do performance testing on that image. Um, we used to, um, you know, if you start off with it with a base image and it's, you know, very, very much nothing on it, and then as you add each thing, you're doing performance testing and then using, you know, simulation products that, that basically simulate the login process, all that sort of stuff. Um, so you get a feel for how the build is changing as you build a new image. Um, and we have very strict um, gatekeepers for any performance changes. Um, you know, and you had to you know, fine tune for the build. And I think that's usually the problem with desktop to, to VDR. There's no fine tuning. There's no understanding the, that you're actually on a different base completely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a, an interesting tangent to get on for a second because, I mean, it, the, the the issue is always resources. I mean, and mm. if you think about it in the most abstract term, resources could be pretty much anything. They're just things that you need to do something. So yeah. if you want to think of it like purely generically, you would have like applications fall into that category or whatever. But, you know, point of the matter is if you distribute resources like you've got a normal traditional distributed client, like, you know, I've got my laptop right here in front of me. The tuning is is important, but it's not a world ender. So if my you know PC runs about 0.1 percent higher, that's probably not great, but it's not going to ruin my experience because I've got plenty to spare. But all of a sudden, that 0.1, if you spread that across, you know, a thousand, ten thousand VMs, that becomes a significant issue. It's like any any small problem becomes a massive problem in the aggregate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, we had that in, with with guys who were on laptops, where they, you know, they were doing certain activities that that on their own didn't matter, but the minute you put them on VDI, it made a huge difference because it was it was all of them doing the same thing. Um, and and you and users kind of get used to a certain level of performance as it degrades. They kind of get more. I won't say comfortable with it because they probably aren't comfortable with it, but they know that if they boot the machine up and it takes. 10 minutes, they can go get a cup of coffee and come back and it'll be ready. Um, whereas on a VDR platform, it's it's really causing indirect pain on everybody else. Um, well, and, and that actually, that, that raises a question for me. I, and Heather, maybe you can answer this. Every time your machine blue screens, do you take that as an opportunity to, to go get a cup of coffee or is that just, uh, is that just fun time? Um, yeah, I break out the party poppers and, <laughs> you know, turn the music up and just take a little break. Um, well, well, what, do you, what do you turn the music up on? Because your machine's dead. Oh, true, true. You know, I have my phone. But this is true. And that really is my side. You know, I'm a millennial. Um, yeah, no, I mean, of course, it's 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 super disruptive and uh, 
but I guess, you know, it'd be different, right? If it was a, a repeat experience, like a, on, you know, on booting up my machine, something I could, you know, expect and work in. I think the thing about the blue screen is that they happen at the most inopportune times. Well, if you'd like, what I could do, because I think you're in one of the SysTrack trees that I have access to, I could set your machine up to blue screen every hour. <laughs> is it, does that work on Macs or is it only for Windows? <laughs> the blue screen one's only for, for Windows. I'm sure I could come up with something for Mac OS if you give me a second. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I can goes, write. This goes back to our, our conversation the other day about, the, about the, 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 Mac, the Mac experience versus the Windows experience. True. Yeah, hey, we're working hard on feature parity, which means any day we'll introduce the blue screen for Mac OS. <laughs> <laughs> I have, you know, I have forced blue screens before for demos, but uh, never um, just for fun. I mean, have you considered trying it? Maybe you'll start liking the experience. We were just talking about the fact that you eventually get used to things. Yeah, I mean, I, ha you know, even, you know, even I have, um, but I guess. You know, something I, I've been curious about while well, we've been, you know, talking about some of the challenges with um, getting started with VDI or DAS is that, you know, is this just something that people, you know, there's no option anymore. You just, you know, IT large organizations are just going to have to figure this out because it doesn't look like we're moving away from this work from home or at least partially work from home model anytime soon. Yeah. Um, I mean, my take is lots of people are realizing uh, what I believe a lot of larger organizations started to kind of, I would say, sniff around at, so to speak. Really, I guess back in the starting in the 90s, stopping a little bit with the whole dot com thing and then starting again back, uh, you know, around the last market downturn, uh, which is divesting yourself of physical locations. So uh, obviously there's some OPEX cost that is associated with maintaining a, like a physical retail location or a physical office. And I think people are reconsidering the necessity of that. Um, so I know personally, there are a lot of organizations that we're familiar with that simply will not be returning to the office at the very least until next year. And some, mm. you know, maybe, maybe not ever. Because, you know, they've realized that you can get productivity out of people who are working remote. And if you think about what an opportunity that would be for, well, I mean, let's take uh, financial company A, let's say, and they're fairly widespread. Maybe they're a wealth management organization of some kind. And they have physical offices that are located in major metropolitan cities, like let's say New York City. Well, how much is that real estate costing them? An IT astronomical town. amount, right? Yeah, like it's it's ridiculous. And if I were they, well, what's the utility of having those people come in anymore? Um, can they still be productive without being physically sitting next to each other? Well, you know, this has proved the answer to that question. Even if they're only 90% as efficient, let's say, you have to look at the cost balance of that versus what the expenditure of keeping them in that location would be because there's all kinds of associated costs. And then there's the bigger question of has your business fundamentally changed? Mm. And I, you know, I think a lot of businesses where you had a physical location where people would go in, like, I don't know, just to come up with a completely random one, let's say uh, tax preparation. Well, at this point, and I'm probably just speaking for myself, but I'm assuming a lot of people probably think this way. I am paying someone to go and like physically look over documents and prepare stuff, blah, blah, blah. At this point, you could not pay me to go in and sit in a smaller closed off office building with some person going through a whole bunch of receipts, like physically crammed in together for something that I could just do on the Internet with like absolutely no trouble at all. Um, and I'm not picking on tax preparation in particular. I mean, that's just an <laughs> example. But, um, you know, like you, the, the dynamics are different. Well, you're right. I mean, we, we're not talk, we're talking about not going back at all this year. We, we're negotiating our lease. Um, we're saying it's much easier to book a meeting room on the day that you need it for the people that are going in. And, and, uh, and you know, you use someone like Regis or WeWork or whatever yeah. where you've got a membership. Um, 
and rather pay the cost, the, the exorbitant cost of booking a meeting room for the day, as opposed to paying th this rent that you for a building you're not going to use or, or a floor, whatever it is. Um, and, and I'm hearing the ratio is probably two days in the office, three days at home. That seems to be what people are thinking. Well, I mean, that, that pleases me. I mean, our organization was fairly distributed to start off anyway. Uh, so this really isn't a tremendous change. I mean, the biggest change is, is to core engineering in terms of, you know, what Lakeside has. But, uh, yeah, I think the, the days of people thinking about the traditional kind of nine to five time in the office, you know, five days a week, it's got to change. I mean, to well, me... Well, well, not only, only the office piece, but the nine to five has got to change. You know, do you, yeah. you don't have to necessarily work that nine to five. You can work... Um, 5 a.m. to 7, do something with the family till 9, then you do a couple calls, then you do something with the family again, or you go run some errands. You know, all those things that you're trying to squeeze in and out, you know, you now, because you've cut out this commute time, um, you could you can do a lot more in a day. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people are certainly tied to an old-fashioned idea of productivity that is kind of like what I would call... Ooh, well, let's see. What's a good what's a good term for it? Um, choreographed parallelism, where everyone is doing everything at the same time from that nine to five time window. Mm. But I think that you know, if you think about what probably is best, most people should probably work in some kind of like a staggered parallel, where you know people are at least if they're collaborating with each other, working similar hours where there's some overlap, but most things probably don't require everyone in the department to be working at exactly the same time, which is, uh, I think, something that with remote work becomes a lot easier to conceptualize. Because I think that if you think about the traditional office location, there's a lot of pressure to show up in like a fixed window. So, I mean, if I'm physically going to roll in the door, I don't want to be that well, you know, I mean, I don't want to be that jerk that shows up at like 11.30, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, because there's a funny thing. If you, if you, if you, everyone's there at nine and you're up at 11, everyone looks at you, unless you've, you sort of blurt out the reason why you were late. Yeah. People, yeah. people give you the, why are you late? I mean, this is not every, every company, but I think there is a, a definitely a, a conscious or subconscious, why is that person late every day? Um, Never mind that that person may have worked till three o'clock in the morning and, and got three hours sleep and had to run the kids to school, whatever it is. Um, you know, everyone's got their story. But that's why I think it's it's good to be getting out of this factory mindset of nine to five, five days a week. Yeah, I feel like the fear is, um, and this is what was holding a lot of companies back from allowing remote work, is that, you know, send people home and we can't see them anymore. So that means they're not working. And I feel like where people should really be paying attention is overwork um, and how do we make sure that people are, you know, shutting off at home and not getting burnout. I think that risk um, is is probably a lot higher. I mean, I know, you know, for myself, I'm definitely working longer hours. You know, I'm popping on um, at times where I, I wouldn't have before just because, you know, my laptop's at the office, but now it's here. So you know, I can work whenever. And I think that's, um, you know, a bigger risk right now that, that companies need to pay attention to. Yeah, well, you, there's a lot of sort of you know, people writing tips on LinkedIn and, and a lot of sort of podcast episodes talking about Zoom fatigue. Um, you know, my morning, for example, this morning was was eight meetings in a row of half an hour each on, on Teams. But you basically, did, you know, there's no break. Um, and if one of those runs over, and, and look, we did this, in, you know, all the corporates I've worked in, you know, you're always on the phone. Um, but because you haven't sort of had that commute in the middle where you've had some time outside, et cetera, you basically, once you're online, you're online, and then people see you're online, and then your day just becomes jammed with with, with calls, um, which are all screen calls. Uh, you, you don't, you need, a, you need a break, and you need to set boundaries. Uh, you need to book time out of your diary to go outside and walk around and go for a run and all that kind of stuff. So overwork's a big thing, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think the, 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 the question is, 
Yeah, I guess if I just think about the paradox here, right, like there's a very real issue with the office that is the challenge of having coworkers do the, the judgment of, oh, no, am I leaving early? Am I leaving or am I getting here late or, you know, whatever the case might happen to be. But in a lot of ways, they offer a balance in the other direction, too, because I've certainly been in a position where people are like, just go home. You know what I mean? It's a lot yeah. harder for someone who is remote. I mean, you're not going to get a Teams message. I mean, probably at like two o'clock in the morning and someone's just like, you know, go to bed. I can see you're working on whatever it is that you're working on. So, you know, I think there's pros and cons. I, I think you you do by nature lose a little bit of the kind of human connection when you're not physically present with someone. Yeah, which which uh, yeah, I'll be honest. I'm I'm looking forward to going back into the office at some point to see people, uh, and I'm I'm happy with the sort of one to two days a week in the office and and three days working somewhere else, which may not be at home either. Um, you know, I was talking to my wife about getting an office down the road here, one of these shared working spaces, because um, it's not really t- it's not not really expensive, but at least it's cheaper than my train ticket, um, but it gives me a dedicated working space which takes it out of the house and it's walking distance away from the house. So I think that yeah. might be what, what some people do. Yeah, I, I honestly would not be surprised to see a kind of second surge of those uh, rental offices and kind of rental meeting spaces. So I think Regis is probably very well positioned right now. I mean, honestly, this is probably like some of the best news that they've ever gotten in a lot of ways, because not only is there going to be a lot of real estate probably that's going to come up soon, but I think people are going to completely lose the appetite for maintaining their own offices uh, as much as it's conceivably possible anyway. Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a good time to be in that line of business. Yeah, I think I think it's, well, once you've done your social distancing modifications that you need to do uh, I think yeah you're right um, but there's quite a lot then you have to worry about with, with occupancy and mm-hmm. and handling uh, I actually looked at a product um, earlier this week which was quite nice about this where it, it's calculating based on it, it it ties into your sort of you have a mobile app that's part of your organization it's got sensors in the building so it's a smart building technology um, and it's calculating your occupancy per floor, uh, where people are in the building when they've booked a desk. Um, and if there is someone that, that is, is found to have COVID, um, you can know then who was in the building at the time. So you can do all your contact tracing, et cetera. And because you've signed in as a, you know, this is a company driven exercise, you know, your privacy is, is relatively protected. Um, they do other stuff around air filtration and, and purification and that kind of stuff. But, but I, I definitely would think there's a lot of buildings that would be going, would have to go down that route if they were looking to be um, competitive uh, going forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we are going to start seeing a huge uptick in marketing that's oriented around cleanliness. That's probably for sure. <laughs> You know that the only country or one of the few, well, I know of at least one country that didn't go into any sort of lockdown was was Japan. Mm-hmm. Because they already uh, do all these things by default. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they, they did some limited work, but they're exceptionally good about wearing masks and things of that sort, which I think makes a huge impact. Mm. Yeah, there was a couple, it was one or two other countries in Europe, but, uh, but someone was saying that Japan didn't even, didn't even blink. I think they had, they had like double digit cases. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. well, you, d- you definitely don't want to talk about case counts with a, someone from the U.S. Sorry, Heather, I cut you off. Oh, I was just saying, I, I actually had a meeting this morning with our Japanese marketing manager. Um, so, of course, one of the first things we do on these global calls anymore is just like, how's it going over there? Like, oh, and, you know, as, as someone in the U.S., it's never, you know, we never get to deliver the good news, right? Um <laughs> But yeah, I think she was she was just saying that, um, you know, I think a lot of people are still working remotely, but um, there's it, it seems like there's more back to the office activity um, and that's that's happening a lot more over there. Um, mm. But I think they're just I think she was saying they're just kind of opening up bars and, and some restaurants again. So, oh, so um, they actually did go into lockdown and that, that person who gave the information wasn't right. 
Yeah, I'm not I'm not exactly sure that, you know, maybe it wasn't, um, you know, maybe it was just like some business closures and stuff. I'm not exactly sure. But, mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely seems like the situation is, um, you know, more under more under control there. But, um, you know, this makes me think, too, about, you know, how how companies are going to manage this like sort of new hybrid model, right? Where people, you know, you might shift to that co-working facility and that's like how you do your meetings and you don't have any traditional real estate anymore. Um, Do you just send everyone, you know, a laptop and, you know, that's the device now, like the desktop isn't. um... Well, in some companies that's the default, but when I started working for one of the cloud companies that I I was with, I only met the people via conference calls and, and in some cases, Skype calls, I think, at that stage. Um, and when I started, my laptop arrived two days before my first day. Uh, I had a, an envelope with all the stuff I needed to do, sort of, you know, logging in and all that kind of stuff. And then once I logged in, there was a bunch of training and that, that's how I started the job. I only sort of met people, I think, two, three weeks later, one, of the, you know, one day in, in the city, because um, everyone was remote. And, you, and you're talking to everyone on the phone, as I say. And I think what, what's what's probably the clearest thing that needs to be fixed in this new world is is meeting management. Um, how to make those more productive and probably less often. Yeah, yeah. I think if anyone can find the cure to the unnecessary meeting, uh, I would instantly grant them the title of the only trillionaire to deserve their money. <laughs> Can we set up like a sensor action or a notification to just, you know, you have more <laughs> every, than every time, more. <laughs> every time someone's going to set up an unnecessary meeting, we blue screen their machine. <laughs> <laughs> just a pop up that says, do you really need that meeting? Can this be an I mean, email? I, yeah, actually, that could just be for any time you set a meeting invite out. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually some really good books on, on, on all that stuff. It all comes down to. When you send that, when you send that invite for a meeting, asking yourself that question: Is this really worthwhile having a meeting about? Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people also don't really think about like what they they think in semi-concrete terms about what they what their what their vision of the outcome is, but they don't actually have concrete things that they want as an outcome. That's a huge problem because then you get like long meandering meetings that don't go anywhere. Yeah, and you also have too too many people in a meeting as well. So, and, you, and then you have the different personality types: the ones that love to talk and the ones that never say a word. Um, you know, all those. There's, I think there's probably there's a, there's a couple of good memes about all the people you have in a meeting, all the personalities. Yeah, so many meeting bingo cards. Um, you know, I think one interesting question, maybe to sort of round us out, is what are what do both of you think some of the long-term impacts of this experience will be on IT? Uh, well, I, I think that <laughs> people are, are going to want to have the uh, IT person show up uh, at their desk less often. I think that's probably a given. Uh, so the physical, the day of the physical person showing up to jiggle some cables is probably passed. Um, Uh, Joking aside, I think that uh, it probably means that we are going to see a permanent shift towards having to support the uh, kind of IT experience of users in their own home. I don't know what the Mm. ramifications of that would be, but, you know, there is a reasonable set of stuff that IT could probably conceivably say, hey, I've got control over this, and that's as it should be, which is whatever resources they give you. But, you know, is it in their control if you happen to have, you know, the world's worst ISP? Harder to say. I mean, do they then start paying you to get better broadband? That seems fair if that's what their expectation is. But, you know, who knows how that shakes out? Yeah, that's come up a few times that that's the companies, if they're going to be saving money on the office space, potentially they are channeling some of that money to their, their staff to have better um, connectivity. Um the things that, that I've noticed, you know, here in the UK is is in chatting with other people as well, is that the residential bandwidth is okay, but it's not nearly good enough for for everyone to be online the whole day. Um, so I would almost see government, you know, some of these some of these care packages that the governments are spending on to keep businesses running um, would probably be going to the direction of fixing the infrastructure 
in the in the residential space, or pushing the companies that handle that to, to fix it faster, um, so that people can do this more more robustly. That's yeah, a bit of a sore topic for those of us in the United States, considering there actually was a massive investment that was made that was supposed to do exactly that that did not turn out as such. If you want to look <laughs> up the history of fiber in the U.S., that's a whole thing. Well, we got the same thing. So OpenReach, which is um, uh, the company that's running it out across the U.K., uh, and uh, I don't know if this is exactly the number. I think they're 10 years behind where they should be. Might be five years behind. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's it's unique to the US. Um, just just to, one other comment. I think the the thing that that I like about what's happened here, if you can find any positivity in in this sort of situation, is everyone's been pushed to the same level. So now we're all comfortable with things like Zoom and Teams, stuff that that for some of us was sort of you know old hat. Um, so now everyone's on the same level. The average technical skill of an end user has had to be pushed upward. Um, Okay, look, it's not we're talking about being being uh, experts, but at least they now understand some of the stuff because they've had to do it for, at home with someone talking them through it as opposed to doing it for them and giving them back the machine. So I, I'm kind of confident or, or excited in a sense to see, does that actually change some of the conversations around spend on IT, where previously it was a cost center and, that, and there was always a, a, gr a grudging spend on it to saying, actually, you know what, we'll spend on that because we've seen the impact of not spending on that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, to be determined, but I think that's, you know, probably where, where we'll see things going. Um, well, Ben, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us for this discussion. Well, thank you, Heather. Thank you, Ryan. Always good to talk. Um, let me know. Always happy to uh, just ramble on for an hour or so. <laughs> Always good. Where, where should people look up uh, for you on, on sort of Twitter or LinkedIn or anything like that? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at uh, the Ben Murphy. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Ben W. Murphy, I think is my short name. But uh, yeah, so look me up on LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever oh. you, you feel interested in. Well, we'll put that in the show notes as well. So, so anyone who's looking for you can find you. Great. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I will catch you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes at the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.